I have the privilege again of bringing you guys a message this morning, and I wanted to share that because how many of you know when it comes to doing things that parents tell kids not to, they're pretty much pros at it. And when it comes to trying to cover up the things that they're clearly guilty for, not so much. Uh, it makes for some really cute, funny clips like this, uh, but it also points us to the fact and the reality that we see very early on our sinful nature at work, even in young toddlers, that even as a three-year-old, a uh, person can lie to an attempt to just cover up and, and um, try and make an, an adult or a parent or authority figure believe that they didn't do something they knew they weren't supposed to do. They're so good at it, <laughs> or at least they try to be. Um, so in any case, it serves as a good reminder for us that it's... it's a good reminder that beyond our sinful choices uh, is the choice of either confession or covering up. So we find freedom and victory in confession, but continuously we live in defeat when we keep on sinning and we keep on hiding that sin that we struggle with. So that's what I want to talk about today. <laughs> we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about God's love, His grace, and His mercy uh, but we're going to talk about it in light of his holiness and how he calls us to be holy. So while we might try and cover up sin, the reality is that God is omniscient. He knows all. So he knows the things that we're going through, the things, our weaknesses, what we're prone to, our sinfulness. And no matter how much we try to hide it, no matter how much we try to suppress it, even if we're like, we're, we're kind of come off as like the, the toddler with icing on its mouth, like, hello, <laughs> God knows. We can't hide it from him. And so I want to grapple today with God's wrath. Uh, we see it in Joshua. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. And a lot of people, they shy away from the Old Testament because it's like, well, what's that God? How do I really make, come to terms with God? seemingly being angry a lot in the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about his righteousness, his mercy, and his grace in light of that. We're going to talk about this guy who just couldn't resist the lure of earthly treasures. And ultimately, my hope is that we leave here today with the courage to invite God in and others into our sinful struggles. So that by doing so, we can really truly experience the victory over the things that are keeping us from fully taking hold of all that God has for us, all the blessings that he has for our lives, all the peace, all the rest, all the purpose that he wants to give to us. So to do this, we're going to pick things up back up in the book of Joshua. We started a couple weeks ago. In case you missed it, uh, we're spending the summer season in a few Old Testament characters because we feel like there's some great story there. There's some really uh, relatable people who go through things, who face struggles, and, and who serve God faithfully through it, or who mess up, and we learn from their mistakes. But in these people, we get to look at ourselves and see how our faith can be strengthened. So we're spending a little bit of time in the book of Joshua looking at Joshua, who's one of those figures. His story is one of God-fulfilling promise. Right, So it's the story of the Israelites. They are disobedient. They lack faith. They're, they're in Egypt as slaves. God brings them out, but then they're grumbling and complaining and not be fully believing that God is actually bringing them to something better. So God 
keeps the first generation there from entering into the promised land because they don't have faith that God can help them overcome every obstacle, all these people who are so strong in these cities who are so strong, who, who are pagans and worshiping other gods and yet have such strength. They get fearful and they let that come in the way. So this story is truly about God giving his people a new home, having mercy on the Israelites overall so that they can enter into this place where after years of slavery and wandering, they can truly prosper and live life in God's perfect will. So if you read through Joshua, you quickly see that it just doesn't come easily. They have to actually uh, fight people. They have to literally go to war and go to battle. They don't just get handed over this land. Uh, And they do that because they're such sinful people in the land. It's just completely evil. So the Israelites, they face a lot of difficulties. They have to cross the Jordan River and at full... uh, it's, it's harvest time, so it's fully uh, alive and, and rapids are going strong. And, and they have to cross over thousands and thousands of their people across this Jordan River. And God, he amazingly, as we saw last time, he does the miracle once again of stopping water from flowing so that they can cross over. And then uh, we see that God asked them to build a memorial. So I'm just kind of going to bring you through a little bit. We're going to kind of catch up through Joshua. So God has them build a memorial so that they can remember his power and all the things that they've done, that God's done for them, and how he's brought them into this land so that they can look back at it and say, yes, God did that for me so I can have faith and I can be strong and I can uh, be obedient because I know he is for my good. So they do that. Then they celebrate Passover, which they hadn't done in, in, while they were in wandering. And they there's circumcision happening. And uh, then they eventually seek the Lord, and the Lord guides them to their first battle at the city of Jericho. And we're going to skip over Jericho today because Jackie is going to be preaching on that next week. So make sure you're here for Jackie sharing a message on that next week. But most of you know the story of Jericho. Uh, they, the walls come tumbling down in this fortified city, and God gives, basically hands the city over to them because they're obedient in the way that he tells them to go about it. So here they are coming off of this victory They choose to pursue the promise. They continually choose it. And as they do, God does these amazing things. And we see his mercy being extended even when they lacked faith in the past, when their uh, parents lacked faith, when their grandparents lacked faith. So ultimately, it's about them, a generation finding new life while shaping and changing the nations. So for us, as we look at this book, and we, we can examine both our lives individually and collectively as a church family, and even globally as, as the global church, to say, God, we want to see your promise fulfilled, right? Don't you want to see people's lives changed? Finding hope and finding peace and finding rest in God and, and finding freedom from the things that keep hold them back from really accomplishing all that God has for their lives? Because God does have a purpose for each and every one of us. He does have good plans for each and every one of us. And collectively, too, for the church to be a movement in this world that brings about justice, that brings about hope, that's something that we want to be a part of. That's why you're all still here. (laughs) That's why you're all here in this place. That's why you're all a part of this church, even though we're going through a kind of a tough season of transition. Any transition's tough. That even in this, we believe that God wants to use this church and the church as a whole to bring hope to people. 
So today, I want to take a little bit of an inward look at ourselves, how we can allow our hearts to covet and attempt to hide and ignore our sins, the things that we struggle with, and how that keeps us from living our life to the fullest. God has good plans for our lives. I said that. We want, he wants to bless you, and he wants to bless those around you through you. So before we jump in, would you just join me in praying and asking God's blessing over this? God, we thank you so much for uh, your plans and your purposes for us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love that is so deep and abiding in our lives. May we feel it. May we sense it. I pray this morning as I share this story where the Israelites go through some struggle where we see sinfulness and disobedience that you would teach us and draw out of us what we need to bring to light in our lives, what we need to bring before you or bring before others so that we can continue to step forward and step into such an amazing life where we find fulfillment in you and how you designed us and the things and assignments you have for us that are so great. We believe, God, that you want to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think or imagine, God. So we pray that we would come before you humbly, just open to receiving your word, that your spirit would speak to us, that you would move upon us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we left off a couple of weeks ago uh, where they're just getting through over the river celebrating what God's done, and, and the walls of Jericho come down. And now we see them, after this victory that they had, getting ready. They're, they're, they're on a roll. They're excited. They're pumped. They're amped. They're ready to take on the next city. They're ready to go after Ai. It's a city that uh, is next on their journey of, of the cities that they have to conquer and overcome and as they go about these battles. So, we read in chapter 8, if we skip ahead over 7, we read in chapter 8 about the Israelites' victory over Ai. It's a battle of epic proportions. It really is. It's like something you would see in a movie. They really should do a movie on Joshua because it would probably be very gory. It might be rated R because of the gore um, and other things if they showed the pagan Canaanites. Um, so we see this amazing battle, though. God, he directs and guides them on this very strategic plan of like this one ambush coming in, going after the city, and then all of a sudden, just as, as they're about to go in, they start to retreat. So all the people of Ai, they run after them, and they're going after them thinking, all right, we, they're fearing us, we got this. And then God strategically has another ambush come in from another side, take over the city, basically surround them, and they have this amazing epic victory because they're following God's instructions because they're being obedient, because they, are, they, they have the blessing of God's presence with them. So we see two victories, two great victories early on in this whole conquest of the Israelites taking, coming into the promised land. But sandwiched in between there, we skipped over chapter 7, right, is a story of defeat that points us to look inward at the choices that we make in our lives. It affects not only us, but other people around us, those choices that we make. So look with me at the very last verse. If you, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. I'll have it up on the screen. In the very last verse in chapter 6, 
Again, Israelite, Israel was just obedient to, to God. Then they had this amazing victory over Jericho. And it says in verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So Joshua's doing great, right? He's taking on this leadership from Moses. Like, how can you follow Moses? This guy who, you know, comes from the wilderness, from Egypt, growing up in Egypt, into the wilderness to God calling him back and doing all these things to free thousands and thousands of Israelites. But Joshua's doing a great job. He's, he's leading the way. And then we see a major shift. We read the first word of verse 7. It says, but, so that's a pretty good signal. Something's about to change. Like, Joshua, you're doing great, but something's going to change. Joshua is doing great as a leader. Everyone's following the instructions that God gave. God's doing all kinds of miracles. They're pursuing the promise. They're moving even closer to the peace and rest in the land that God promised them. But, the but here signifies something is about to interrupt them. Something is about to throw off this role that they're on, this uh, progress that they've been making and pursuing this promise. They're on a roll because they have the blessing of God's presence. God's guiding them. He's doing miracles. But something is about to throw it off. So we continue reading. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. So just to backtrack a little bit, they took over Jericho, right? There's all kinds of things in Jericho. They're, they had some riches. They had some treasures. They had gold and silver and all kinds of fine linens and things. And God, when they, took, when they took over Jericho, when the walls came tumbling down and they took over the city, they took all these things, or they took some, they burned some, they took some things into their possession. But God told them, these aren't things that you're supposed to take for yourself. I want you to put these in my treasury. We're going we're gonna to put these things aside. It's not for you. And so we read, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So we see this major shift in the story. It quickly, after that, returns to their conquest, though, and it shows us the consequences of this disobedience, of Achan's actions, of Achan's trying to hide and suppress the sin, this disobedience. Joshua, he sends out men to go and spy out the land I. Because that's, you know, he, he thinks he's got to do his due diligence, his reconnaissance. He's got to see what, what they're after, what they're facing. So he's being a good, responsible leader there. But they come back, and they basically tell him, oh, this city's tiny, like nothing compared to Jericho. We totally got this, no problem. Let's just send like 3,000 of our soldiers. We'll get it, no, no issue at all. So Joshua sends out these 3,000 soldiers. They enter Ai, and they're quickly driven out by the soldiers of Ai, who end up killing 36 of them. So just like that, Israel is back to living in defeat, fear, and confusion. And then it continues to say, go on in verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same thing and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said to the Lord, Alas, sovereign Lord, 
Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the, side, on, on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? And Joshua, he's, he's being vulnerable with God. He's being honest and open with God. He's saying, God, I, I don't, he's, it's not fully lining up for him. He doesn't understand what's going on. God led them into this promised land so that they could take it, so that they could be people of victory. And he's just trying to understand and grapple with this. And he's trying to say, God, I know your name is great and you want your name to be great. Why did we lose this battle? So the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So from here, and I, I know we're going through a lot of scripture today. I'm just trying to give you the full picture of the story. But from here, all the tribes gather, and God, in this really dramatic, dramatized way, draws out Achan. It goes from like, Let's gather all the tribes together. We're going to get all the tribes together. Then from the tribes, we're going to call out the clans. Then from the clans, we're going to call out the one family. Then from the family, we're going to call out the one person. And I can just like picture the tension there of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Who did this? Who like caused this defeat for us? And there's just a sense of fear and, and, and anguish for all the people. So Achan... From, he comes out from among everyone. Joshua then questions his action, and Achan replies in verse 20 and 21 and says, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with silver underneath. So let's break down what's going on here. All right. At the first glance, you might read this story and think, wow, that's, that's pretty harsh. That seems pretty harsh. That God draws out this guy who seems to have a moment of weakness, and he punishes him severely for it. The focus seems to be on God's wrath and this one man's sin uh, of taking a few things from Jericho. So the first question we might ask is, why was this a sin? Couldn't they keep things for themselves in the first place? By banning it, God is showing that waging, he's waging war against evil. He's not, the conquest, is, it wasn't about the Israelites' personal gain. It wasn't about their own plundering party that they wanted to have to enrich themselves. Their hearts were in the right place 
they, they weren't in the right place at the time to be able to keep the treasure and really fully understand and know that. So it's only once that God's, it's only once God's priority of just eliminating evil, taking out evil from this land is recognized and satisfied that he then is, get, freely gives of these things to the people. So the next question we might raise is why does the Lord's anger burn against Israel? Because we start out this passage, this, this chapter, with it saying that, that God's anger burned against them. Maybe you've struggled with this in the past, understanding why we see, seem to see this God in the Old Testament who's burning with anger uh, like we do here, but the God of the, the reality is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. God is unchanging. So let's take a minute to talk about how God's wrath points to God's love. Anytime we see God's anger burning in Scripture, it's in response to evil. Most parents would, at, at the seeing mistreatment of their kids, would respond with righteous anger. Maybe for, for us, it's, uh, we feel an anger when we see injustice happening in this world. We know that there is something better, that something, there's, there's freedom that people should have in this world. There's um, really a, a better way, and, and we can get angry at seeing uh, inhumane treatments towards others or, or things like that. Does that anger reveal a lack of love and compassion in us? It actually pretty much does the opposite. We feel that anger and justice at the injustice and the wrong that we see because we care about people. So anger is how goodness responds to evil. Just as like when you, you know, ever been in like the dark for a while, maybe you've got some blackout curtains in your apartment, you walk outside on a sunny summer day and it's like you squint. You're just like, that's how it responds. Or when you touch something hot, your hand recoils. Kind of similarly, similarly is how anger responds to seeing injustice and mistreatment. So for God, we see that he is angry at the evil that's keeping his people from fully advancing into all that he asked for them. From fully living their lives to the fullest. That's why he's burning with anger, because he wants the best for them. And his anger, because he's a just God, a God who, who is righteous, because of that, he, he has this anger against evil, but we see that his mercy is still present. His mercy still extends to the Israelites. We see it in their history, and then we see it in our lives as we find Jesus on the cross, taking the, the wrath of God upon him for our sin, taking our sins upon him, dying in our place because we deserve death because we're people. And we inherit a sinful nature. Sin that tr separates us from God, that pulls us apart from God. So we see his compassion and his mercy even in this. And we also see here in this passage that the sin that is committed by the one can affect all those around. Anyone here remember Recess? I'm not talking about this, the, the, the cartoon. <laughs> All right, that was a good cartoon. But I'm talking about the activity where you take a break from learning and you would go and scream and run around. I loved Recess. It was great. Elementary school, 
that's what it's all about, recess. Then you get to middle school and it's like all about lunch because there's no recess anymore. And then you enter in the cafeteria and it's a bunch of hormones and sweat and it's the loudest place in all the school. But recess was great. And anyone have a teacher or teachers that would threaten you or your, your whole class with taking recess away? Like someone does something and they're not sure who did it and they're like, we're going to take it away. There was one time where one crazy kid thought it would be a good idea to write someone else's name in the bathroom in some bodily fluid, let's say. And, and the teachers were pretty upset about this because that's generally not accepted. You know, it's not like graffiti in general is not accepted, but with bodily fluids, like extra not accepted. So, of course, this person's not going to want to come out, right? They're not going to want to fess up to it. So everyone is sat down and like everyone's there and the teacher tried to pull it out, but eventually they get to the point where it's like, you know what? No recess for everyone. And then everyone's like, what the heck? Who did this? There's this anger. There's this confusion. But that's just, I say that to point back to the fact, back to the point that our sin, it affects people around us. Whether it's directly or indirectly. When it's direct, it's more obvious. And we're usually aware of it. But it can also be indirect. And we can sometimes get caught up in, in the belief or the, the lie that our sin isn't affecting others around us. But the reality is that though there are others affected by our sin, because when we live in habitual sin we, and we keep sins hidden, we're not living to our full potential. We're not living in life that God wants for us. And when we're not doing that, we're living sometimes feeling defeated from our sin, feeling shameful, feeling guilty. And in turn, we aren't able to give our best to those around us. It affects our families. It affects our friends. Sin brings destruction. And it doesn't just bring it to our life. Other people, there's other people out there that God wants to use you to, to transform, to, to bring hope and healing to them. And you can't do that if you're just caught in your brokenness yourself and you're trying to hide it. We're all broken people. That's the reality. We all struggle with sin. But when we try to hide it, when we try to suppress it, there's this, this cycle, there's this almost a snowball effect of, okay, well, I sinned. I'm struggling with this sin and I'm lost in it. I'm feeling defeated. And then it leads to other things. Maybe it's lying or, or trying to cover it up or, or really not giving yourself to others and serving others. Whatever it is, it can take all kinds of, uh, there can be all kinds of symptoms of it. But the good news is that we can overcome this. We can live in victory by recognizing the thought patterns that lead to coveting and even further sinful action beyond the point of coveting. God wants us to, to bring those things to light. Achan, he ultimately valued a few pieces of that loot from Jericho above the riches of living out God's perfect plan. And that perfect plan was a plan where he and all of Israel would be in relationship with God that causes them to truly thrive in this new home for them. So it wasn't like God, like he heard God's command to not do it and then immediately went out. 
we, re- we read, he, he shares kind of his process as he fesses up, as he explains to Joshua what happened. It was probably small steps of compromise that led to him coveting in the first place, which then became the sinful action. For us, it, it, it can be those small little compromises that we allow in our lives of just I, I, like seeing something and then taking a step towards it, but God wants us to flee from those things. He wants us to live and pursue him above the sin. So a lot of times in our, our Christian walk, right, we can struggle with certain sins because we, we get so caught up in the sin itself, but we're no, we don't look at the root of the problem that we need a greater desire for God. We need in our lives a greater desire to value him above anything else. Because in him, those sins that we struggle with, the things that we struggle with, they're, they're just a false uh, fulfillment of those desires. But in him, we're fully fulfilled because he created us, he knows everything about us, and he wants us in relationship with him, with him where he lavishes love on us, where he gives us purpose and directs us and, and gives us a sense of clarity about our lives. So it's only as his people lose sight of his generosity, his provision, his goodness, that covetousness consumes them. It's exactly what Satan does in Genesis 3, right? He, when he tempts Adam and Eve, he's tempted, uh, he, the, Adam and Eve, they're tempted because Satan places an emphasis on the restriction that God has imposed rather than on the riches that he has lavished like he focuses them on the one thing that they can't have and they lose sight of everything else that they can have. Our faithfulness to God has to flow out of a contentment with God's goodness in order for us to not get caught up in the same habitual sinful life or leaving sins unconfessed and hidden. Achan, he desired the silver, the gold, the garments more than he desired the fellowship with God. And John Piper, he says this, coveting means desiring something too much. And too much is measured by how, much, how that desiring compares to desiring God. If desiring leads you away from God rather than closer to God, it is covetousness, it is sin. So, like I said, the reality is that so much of our sin is rooted in misplaced desire. We're creatures of desire. That's our nature. Our desires are not bad in and of themselves, but are our desires centered on our ultimate desire of knowing God who knows everything about us. For me, one of the, I haven't really fully shared this before, but one of the biggest hidden sins in my life in the past, uh, as I was really from a young age into high school and a little bit early on in college. And this is one that so many people struggle with. It was lust and pornography. And I didn't fully know or realize the detriment it was taking. I would, I would feel the conviction and I would repent and come before God and ask for him to help me overcome it. And looking back, I, I didn't realize that there was even times where I would say it was an addiction, seasons where it was an addiction. And I wanted to overcome it. I didn't want to, you know, live this way, but I didn't expose it to anyone. I didn't confess it to anyone. 
because there's nothing more that Satan wants for you to do than live in that defeat of feeling that shame, that guilt. And it eventually came to the point where it's like any sin that people struggle with and are lost in, it comes and goes and it comes and goes. And you, like the Israelites, they're in this cycle of sin and repentance and then repentance and turning to God and worshiping him and then lacking faith or giving in to temptation. And it eventually came to the point where there was just one day where God spoke to Sarah and he told her to go and look at my history. And she found things that weren't, I wasn't supposed to be looking at on there. And I, I look back at that and I see that as the moment in my life when I really knew God's grace and mercy because I was able to then have it exposed, bring it to light so that it could be dealt with. And there's things in our lives that we want to suppress, we want to hide because we fear that it might affect our relationships or it might damage our pride or the things that we seem to value, but ultimately we have to value that relationship with God, that living in righteousness and purity and fullness and not get caught up in those things. And for us, it might look like all kinds of different things. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not something to do with sexuality. Maybe it's not lust. Maybe it's comparison or jealousy. Whatever it is, God wants to, us to bring it to light. He wants us to confess it to him, to confess it to others so that it can be dealt with, so that we can have other people asking us and, and encouraging us to life, pushing us to life. So the question is not whether or not our sin will be revealed. And it may not be that some, God in his grace and his mercy reveals it to someone else to, to draw you out of that. But the question, it's not whether or not it will be revealed, it's will it, or will it be brought to light? The question is, will we bring it to light now, or will we let God bring it to light later? And there's a quote, another quote from John Piper, where he says, to be caught in secret sin is a horrible thing. There's only one thing worse, and it's to not be caught. Because when we're not caught, we don't find life. We don't walk in, in the fullness that God has for us. We, don't, we miss out on the blessing of his presence. This whole passage, it hinges on the end of verse 12 where God says, because this hidden sin has been among them, that he, is taken, he has taken his presence from them, the blessing of his presence. God's present at all times, everywhere. We know that he's omniscient, but there's a difference between him being present in judging and him being present and giving us blessing and moving our lives forward and helping elevate us and, and, give, and give us all the things that he desires for us to have, that rest, that peace, that hope, that life. So for us, the worst thing is to not be caught. The worst thing is to continue to believing the lie that I can overcome this in my strength. I can do it because... I can, I can just get over it. I know I can. But in, when we do it in our own strength, we'll continually fail. We'll continually fall short because we're just sinful people. We need Jesus. We need 
his grace, his forgiveness, and he died on the cross. He took the wrath of God that is so angry at evil that exists because it pulls us away from that relationship because he loves us, because he wants us to walk in peace and hope. So for us, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle of overcoming pride. It's a struggle of overcoming that, that shame and that guilt that we feel. Know that whatever it is at the root of it is a misplaced desire and hope that will hinder you and those around you from fully experiencing that blessing of God, working in and through you to bring redemption and life to the fullest. So we can walk in victory when we expose the sin in our lives. If you've ever felt defeated, you know you don't want to stay there. You have to do something about it. You have to take that action. So how can we keep our lives free from desiring other things more than God? Free from coveting, free from being caught up in this idolatry where we desire whatever it is, that sin. One thing we can do is regularly go back to the Word of God. The Word of God lifts us up. It encourages us to follow after the ways of God, the things that are going to bring us life. It convicts us. And we have to understand that there's a distinction between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is feeling guilty over confessed, or sorry, condemnation is feeling guilty over unconfessed sin, or confessed sin. Conviction is feeling guilty over unconfessed sin. So the difference between conviction and condemnation is conviction comes into our lives when we haven't fully confessed or that sin. Conviction is bringing to light the th- areas of our lives that aren't in line with what God has for us. So I look, like I said, I look back at that. I look back at any moment in my life where I have conviction, I understand and fully know that is God's love at work. Because God doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants you to step into the life that he has for you in that fullness. So we can regularly go back to the Word of God. We can pick out some people whose lives show that they treasure Christ above other things. And we can keep our eyes on them and watch them. Paul says it's a good way to conquer covetousness. And that can look like finding someone whose life is clearly being fruitful and talking to them about that. Or maybe it's finding a spiritually mature and wise Christian who will, has an outlook um, that the love and treasures of God are so much greater than anything else and, and pay attention to how they act and how they make choices. This might be difficult for you to find. And when it's difficult to find, maybe you can go back and read the biographies of great people who have done, done great things and walked out their faith in great ways. Or maybe even a podcast to listen to. And you can meditate on Philippians 3, 7 through 8. It's one of my favorite scriptures. It says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What more? I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Jackie, you want to come up as we get ready to close out? So Paul, he knows that there is nothing that can compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of being found in in Christ's righteousness, of knowing his life, and his life is righteousness, his life is purity, his life is freedom from guilt and shame and those things. He considers everything lost for knowing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, his Lord. Everything else is garbage. Anything else we can desire and value is garbage in comparison to that. He wants to gain and know Christ, and that should be our desire. That should be the thing that we come back to. God, I value you. I treasure you above anything else because in you I'm able to live out life to the fullest. If you don't listen to God's convicting voice, you won't hear his comforting voice or his guiding voice. It's a package deal. You have to hear that conviction. You have to respond to it and and you have to expose the sin to get out of that defeat and walk in the victory that Christ has for you. A victory where you're fulfilling the dreams that he's put on your heart because you're strengthened by him. Because there isn't anything that's holding you back and hindering you from the blessing of God. Will we trip up? Will we make mistakes? And give in to sin along the way? Yes, but it's about having a heart that fully returns to God. A heart that doesn't want to hide or press down those sins, but has the courage to make it known. Has the courage to face those things despite what consequences you might have to face. And there's a lot less consequences when you, when you deal with it by co- confessing to someone than it, if you let God deal with it or expose it in some other way down the line. The time is now. There's no better time to deal with sin, to, to come before God and ask for his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy over our lives than now because every day is a chance to step into that new mercy. His, new, his mercies are new each and every morning. There's a different type of mercy each and every morning. Your, your faith is fresh each and every morning. Your life is fresh each and every morning because it can be found in Christ. It can be found in his death and we can come to life in him. We are no longer slaves to the sin that we struggle with, but we can enter into the life that he has for us. So I want to just take some time to worship God, to come before him, to ask him to search our hearts. Maybe there's not a sin that you hide or try and hide. Maybe you're an open book. That's great. Let's all just come back to that idea too of let's value and treasure Christ and God above anything else so that we can pursue a passionate relationship with him a vibrancy in our life because of how he's working, because of the blessing of his presence and how we're seeing his presence at work in our lives and and doing things like fulfilling promises. Let's be a people who live in holiness because when we live in holiness, we're able to hear from God. We're able to hear that guiding voice of God because we, 
listened to that convicting voice of God and we changed and we repented and we turned from our sin that separates us so that we can enter into all that he has for us individually and those around us. That other people around us, their lives are going to be better because of how you're facing your sin, because how you're dealing with it, because you're living a very authentic, real life. Be a Christian who lives a real, authentic life. We can all be hypocrites at times. It happens. But God, he loves us. He has grace and mercy for us. And he wants us to experience that today. So I'm going to pray and then we'll worship. God, I pray over each and every person here. That convicting voice would come, but God, with it would come a peace Lord, we grieve the sin in our life. We grieve that evil has tried to pull us away from you, that the enemy has tried to take us away from you and your plans for us. But we know that we don't just live and sit in that grief. We, we experience it. We let it change our hearts. But we step into the life that you have for us. We step into the hope that you have for us because we know, God, that you created each and every one of us with a specific calling, with a specific purpose, and together we get to work as your body to bring hope to other people. So God, may we hear your voice today. May you speak loudly and clearly on those things that we need to draw out, that we need to change, that we need to confess before you and others. And may we value and treasure you above all. In Jesus' name we pray.